This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, among the demands on protesters' lips and signs is community control of the police. And there's nothing new about debates over the use of violence to get justice. A century and a half ago, some folks preached that the struggle against slavery should be nonviolent. But first, in some cities, protesters have zeroed in on corporations that have gotten too cozy with the police. We spoke with Dr. Brittany Friedman, a professor of sociology specializing in race and rights at Rutgers University. The Target, the one in particular, the Midway location, many people have pointed to the fact that that particular location used to be St. Paul's largest Black neighborhood, Rondo. And it was a vibrant cultural and civil center for the African-American community for over a century before it was disrupted and then decimated by the construction of an interstate highway. And we know historically that when that happens, it's facilitated by law enforcement forcibly removing people from their homes. And that's exactly what happened between 1956 and 1968 in this particular case. And so by the time that highway opened, mixed income neighborhood had been fractured, right? And thousands are displaced in what Kianga Yamada Taylor talked about in her book, The Discriminatory Housing Market, right? And this is sort of setting the stage for the construction of, in this case, a particular target. And so these corporations are really, they're serving as a symbol for a legacy of racial capitalism that is entrenched under chattel slavery and neo-slavery, which is looking at fines and fees during the restorative period. But really, that's what is the target, right? The target, not to make a pun, but the target is this symbol and really rotten manifestation of what we would consider racial capitalism, which is on the one hand, entrenching ownership by way of state backing to corporations, ownership of the black community and its ownership of people as well. That's what racial capitalism is about. It's about reducing black people to bodies, reducing our humanity to ownership for corporations by way of the state. And that is what I really see as being at the root of what the protesters are targeting. They're targeting the commodification of Blackness for the state, the assigning of the label of Blackness and then commodifying it to where Black people were only as much as what we're worth to the state. And then if we're not worth anything to the state, which we historically are not, then we can be killed, we can be maimed, we can be exposed to an early death disproportionately similarly to other communities that have been eradicated under its racial capitalist system, right, in indigenous communities. There's a lot of posts going viral talking about President Trump and his ludicrous mentioning of looting when actually the United States is the biggest looter on the planet. That is how the state 
derives sovereignty, this commodification of people and the ownership of it. And that's what the protests are really about right now. It's about this intergenerational ownership that we are rejecting. That is why Trump, that is why the Democrats, and there's across the country, Republicans, it is a bipartisan effort to evoke the military as enforcers of this, evoke the police departments, which law enforcement historically emerged as the protectors of property, of the ruling class. That is what this mobilization we're seeing on the streets is. It's to silence what the truth is, to silence this truth that the state is profiting in a variety of ways, monetarily, first and foremost, but it is profiting off of this sense of power. There's a collective enjoyment of owning. And Black communities across the country are standing and saying, you do not own us. You do not own us. We are not bodies. We are people. We have humanity and we deserve to live. It's not about all lives matter because if all lives matter, then this commodification process wouldn't even have been initiated. Our structures wouldn't be built off of racial capitalism. So that's just a a complete farce that is thrown into the mix to provide some sort of smokescreen. But we're not buying it. And those who are, are... elevating their consciousness who are not in the black community, uh, many people seem to not be buying it anymore either. And that for me is what these protests are about. That is why the state's response is so violent because anytime there has been an explicit collaborative response across communities to target this commodification process, then the state hampers down with an incredibly violent response, a militarized response, because it is the collaboration, it is the unification against white supremacy that is explicitly targeting the root of the system. Because we have a system based on dividing. Radical scholars and activists have been saying this for decades, over a century actually. And that's what makes the protesters dangerous in the eyes of the state. Target and other retailers for a long time have spent lots of money identifying closely with the police, and they thought that was good business policy, but no more. I think we're about to see many of these retailers go into a rash and a rush of rebranding. Yes. They're going to be rebranding, and, I, and I, my fear is that one of the ways they will do this is by supporting activism such as this eight-point plan. It's being put by some, quote-unquote, leading Black activists, but I see it as a form of it's co-opting the movement that is actually pushing for defunding, pushing for abolition of the structure as opposed to revising it. And this eight-point plan, trying to put forth, quote-unquote, evidence-based solutions that would, quote, limit police violence. In reality, this is allowing corporations to latch on and say, look, see, we're going to target institutional racism by joining forces with these types of initiatives. But in reality, you, the corporation, are institutionalized racism. So anything you join is suspect. Anything you join is operative. It is not anything that's going to bring about legitimate change. And a lot of activists are already pointing to the fact that this eight-point plan for police reform is the tactic that the liberals will use to silence any calls for 
structural change, for real structural abolition and defunding. Yes, some folks who style themselves as activists actually devise plans in cooperation with the same folks who are supposed to accept the plan and thereby give the illusion of progress. Exactly. I mean, the goal is to silence anything that is considered radical. And we know that Angela Davis, when she says radical, what she's saying is it's it's literally all it means is looking at the root cause. This eight-point plan is not getting to the root cause. It's not getting to this fact that there's a commodification of life that law enforcement emerged to protect, right, to protect property. It's not getting at that. And many of these quote-unquote rules are are already on the books in many jurisdictions. So it's giving a, a farce notion that you can hold law enforcement account, accountable through rulemaking. When has that ever happened through rulemaking? And another point to that is that if we didn't have these videos, right, with George Floyd, we didn't have the video of his death, all those rules that were broken right there would have been lied about. That's just a fact. So these sorts of plans, that is the fear and that is a legitimate fear that this sort of liberal corporate activism that they're really the proponents of institutional racism, they will jump onto these sorts of planes and they'll try to convince us that this is the change that we need. And even Bernie Sanders is calling on Democrats to embrace this plan. Well, Bernie Sanders, why don't you call on the Democrats to, to call off the police? Because it's Democrats and Republicans that are sending militarized police to shut down the protest. And Sanders, <laughs> he backed Biden. <laughs> so we can't even trust anything that he puts forth either. So I think that is what the state is afraid of, is that the protest is about racial capitalism. That's what the protest is about. Yes, the contradictions, the conflict between the Black community and the police has been common knowledge for generations. But if, as you say, racial capitalism is identified as the problem, well, that's a big difficulty, a quandary for the ruling class as a whole. It is, because the thing is, is that racial capitalism, it functions as a penology. And what I mean by that is that the scholars would call racial capitalism the production of social separateness, right? Or this disjoining of human relations in order to commodify them, to separate and to to create property. But it's not just that. It's that this production or this separation is operating under the guise of punishment for criminality. It's trying to transform then the criminal or this criminalization the criminalized classes into efficient workers to regulate movement and to create indebtedness to the state. This is how racial capitalism is functioning as a penology. And that is how the carceral state is supported with racial capitalism, not just as the basis of a structural system, but it is a penology, it is a logic of the system, it is a logic of punishment, it is a logic of creating individuals who are deserving of punishment. That is what the protests are about. It is about is rejecting that notion, rejecting that entire structure. And that is where the threat is, especially the collaboration, right? This cross-collaboration across oppressed communities. The desire to divide that is a key tactic. The desire to silence it and then also 
with these sorts of uh, reforms, like the eight-point plan, the desire to throw a little token to make it seem like, see, all is well now, because this is going to save us, but we don't have to dismantle the system to save us. We can just adopt this eight-point plan by the very same oppressive jurisdictions that got us here. Yes, with gentrification in full swing virtually everywhere in the country, the whole Black attitude towards development of the community has changed. It used to be that folks bemoaned the lack of stores and such in the neighborhood, but now the appearance of new stores and such actually augurs the disappearance of the current population down the road. Yes, Carol Anderson, she's written about this, I believe it was 1919. Black communities building up and owning, there's histories of us owning our own businesses across the country for over a century, and then the state coming in and wiping out our, our attempt to claim ownership for ourselves, right? It's that the corporations want to provide for us, but when we try to, to claim ownership for ourselves, it gets wiped out. And, it, and when I say the state, it is not just law enforcement. It's white people evoking the state. We know this historically. We see it in the scholarship. We see it in activism. White people evoking themselves and claiming space as agents of the state, seeing themselves as as being imbued with the, the power of the state. And that's what happens in these cases when it's not just the state wiping out Black communities trying to own their own businesses and be self-sufficient. It's white people coming as vigilantes with shovels and knives and, and guns assisting because they see themselves as being in a joint cause. We see instances of this, for instance, in Central Park, we have the case where the woman, right, she calls the police and she says that, you know, I'm being threatened by, by a Black man, she emphasizes Black right, who was simply telling her to please put your dog on a leash, right? It's because she believes that she owned the space. She believes that she's empowered by the state to be there because she's white and that he didn't have the right to tell her anything and that the state would back her. That This is all a part of the same system because everyone is complicit in this system if you don't recognize your privilege and you don't actively either use that privilege in ways such as, for instance, if there's protesters of color standing there and the officers are coming to mow them down, maybe you should stand there, right? We've seen some cases of this. Maybe you should stand there because they're likely not going to mow you down. Or evoke using it in some way to assist rather than just not acknowledging it because if you don't acknowledge it, it's just going to persist and it's going to be weaponized against people of color regardless. So it's this acknowledgement as well of the privilege, of the ability to be complicit in the state. As corporations very quickly try to disassociate themselves from the state and its repressive policies, well, that's a big trick since, as you say, people are beginning to realize the racialized nature of capitalism and the corporate nature of the state. Exactly. We should not trust them, quote, distancing themselves unless we actually see the numbers. Let's do a forensic accounting and see, for instance, this target that I was talking about in St. Paul, how much uh, less funding are they going to give to the police department? We need to actually see the numbers. How few donations are you going to give to politicians who are backing the militarization of the police, who are backing the expansion of the police, 
So if we don't see that, if there's no numbers, if there's no actual decrease in the money flow, it's just all noise, literally white noise. And on that subject, I would remind listeners that back in 2014, 80% of the Congressional Black Caucus voted to continue the Pentagon program that funnels billions of dollars in weapons and gear to local police departments. I think along those lines, we learned very valuable lessons from James Foreman Jr.'s book, Blocking Up Our Own. He talks about how we've been conditioned to believe that we need the carceral state to solve our problems, that we can simultaneously evoke the civil rights mission, but doing so using the carceral state. And he talks about himself being at this crossroads and, and witnessing in horror this, this evocation when he's on the other side pushing for decarceration as the civil rights mission while watching others pushing the civil rights mission using the carceral state. And that's what we see here in that example with the Black Congressional Caucus. And that's widespread. And that is why we fundamentally also, we have to change our ideas about the role of the carceral state. We have to center racial capitalism when we talk about the carceral state and the mobilization of it to disrupt this notion that we need the carceral state to save us. We do not need the carceral state to save us because the carceral state is the one that is killing us. That was Dr. Brittany Friedman of the Center for Security, Race, and Rights at Rutgers University. Dr. Johnny Williams teaches at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. He blames a self-serving black leadership for selling out the poor. As a sociologist and one who studies systemic white racism and has been doing it for over 30 years, what I'm seeing with this protest is, is that it is a, I think, a significant turning point. I think that arriving at this turning point has been building for years. I think it actually started back when Barack Obama was president and when the movement for black lives emerged on the scene under a black president. That it was at that point that black Americans started to see that no matter who occupied the White House, we still would not get justice and that the police and extrajudicial killings would continue unless we did something ourselves. And that's when that movement emerged. And when that movement emerged, the usual kind of black liberals who come out to try to sedate the movement and try to, to redirect it back into racial capitalist ways of being and logic and stuff like that, they encountered people who weren't going to have that anymore, like Al Sharpton, who, who showed his head like he's doing right now in, in Minneapolis, showing his head to try to sedate the movement. And so eventually, yeah, Black Lives Matter, at least the people who found the hashtag, some of them were co-opted, bought into by the Democratic Party, but others did not. There were more radical versions of the movement for black lives in various locations like Cincinnati, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, places like that, where the radical kind of tendency to get to the root cause of the problem, that is, that the criminal justice system and policing are fundamentally racist and designed to discipline black bodies and, in many instances, minds, too, the black bodies and minds. So this movement continued to fester below the surface, even though we weren't hearing about it and so forth. And then when these three events occurred, the three pivotal events, the COVID-19 crisis, which basically showed everyone how these inequalities, and no one can hide from how these inequalities manifest across multiple fields, like health itself, 
well, the recent come we're dying from this virus at a higher rate is because of lack of access to health care, right? It exposed all that. And who was essential? The essential workers. Well, just everyday people, primarily black people, black women, black men, Latinos, right? On and on and on. We were essential. We were being forced to go to work and die, uh, contract the coronavirus and to die from it at these high rates while everybody else stayed home. So all of this then, and the people who staying home are seeing all of this with this guy in the White House, Trump. And as a result, then, they became more attuned to what was happening to them, why people were essentialized in this way, meaning disposable, and they didn't like it. And so we get this kind of multiracial dynamic in the public saying that black lives do matter after what happened to Christian Cooper in the Ramble in Central Park with the white lady calling the police on him because she said that he was threatening her because she wouldn't leash her dog and he wasn't doing it at all. And then you get Ahmaud Aubrey being stopped, killed, hit by the truck, and filmed, and no, nobody arrested for two months later. That angered a lot of people. And then you get the knee on George Floyd's head. But before that, even though, that was Breonna Taylor, who was also killed in her own home when the police came in and just shot her because they had mistakenly went to the wrong home, I guess. Or they, heard, they said somebody was doing something in her house. But the fact is, is that they weren't, and they broke in, and they shot her. So all of these things culminated in this kind of explosion of protests uh, that we see around the country, pretty much inflamed by the guy in the White House. And with the health emergency and the lockdown, we have the onset of depression-level unemployment. Forty percent of the households making less than 40000 a year have been thrown out of work, and a majority of black folks make less than 40000 Exactly. And, and, and we, we were suffering from this depression long before this new Great Depression, I mean, it's really like a Great Depression 2.0. I know in the recent numbers that came out today, just for this week, 1.2 million more people filed for unemployment. So we're at around about 38 million people unemployed. And that's just the official count. The unofficial count, I'm sure, is way above 40-something million people unemployed. And they're suffering. They're barely making ends meet. And the thing about that, though, is is that the suffering of the black community, but also the suffering of white folks who work, too, who also depend on that money, those jobs and so forth, and they're unemployed. And now they're realizing that they've also been hoodwinked by this kind of neoliberal racial capitalist system to believe that somehow it works for them when it's actually not. And they only got that one-time payment of $1,200, which is silly, given that the corporations got billions so all of that then culminated into this explosion of I have empathy because I'm going through the same thing. For me, I'm seeing this kind of empathy with black people and why it is that we're constantly being killed and disciplined by police in the criminal justice system and why it's wrong. It finally hit ahead. And it, it, it has to do with the fact that everybody's experiencing the same kinds of uh, similar kinds of hardships, not the same, but similar kinds of hardship that black America has already been dealing with for centuries. Yes, the impetus for these protests was, of course, the police atrocity. But this wave of demonstrations has an especially anti-capitalist feel. Yeah, and the thing is is that leadership is not stepping up, right? Leadership is not stepping up. That is the political leadership, uh, even corporate leadership. They think they can continue doing what they're doing. But this is the moment where 
people are saying, no, you will take care of our needs first. It's people before profit is what they want. This should have been done a long time ago. I've been advocating for a people-centered society, a beloved community, as Martin Luther King called it, right, for a long, long time. But nobody would listen. They would, they would say that to put people first is socialism or communism. I don't see anything wrong with that. And I think something's wrong with a system that's predatory by design, as capitalism is. And so as a result of the fact that they're taking all of this money and so forth, is that people have become more attuned to having themselves put first, to get their communities put first. And they want something like, say, for instance, the leaders should come up and say, look, we know that this health care crisis, black America has been disproportionately affected by this stuff. And Native America has been disproportionately affected by it, too, because, you know, indigenous folks are dying at, at, at tremendous rates along the similar lines as black folks are. And so what we will do now, because we need this, is a national health care system. And forget this Obamacare stuff that basically putting people on the road so insurance companies can make billions and billions of dollars off of people. Why don't we just have a national health care system? And then to say, you know, look, we know that the $1,200 we gave was insufficient. We need to have a national guaranteed income. And they're not doing that. What they're thinking is is that the political leadership the, and the folks who, who basically are their benefactors are trying to still double down on this neoliberal racial capitalism stuff, which ain't working no more. So it's time to offer some programs that are designed to help people thrive and to focus on communities and so forth. Do you expect to get that under the leadership of a president, Joe Biden? No. Joe Biden is the same old, same old. And this is another thing. I think that if people show up at the polls, if there's any other party on there that is about people-centeredness, and I know some people think the Green Party is that and so forth or whatever, if you believe in electoral politics, which I don't, that's the way you get changes to vote for that third party or whoever, right? We'll see, right? Uh, the system as currently designed is fundamentally corrupt and designed to work for individuals with massive amounts of money. It doesn't work for the vast majority of American people our people of the world, you know, it, it doesn't work for anybody except for those few people. So I don't see electoral politics doing too much, but if people did go to the polls and vote for a third party, I would see a major breakthrough, I think, happening there. But Joe Biden is not the answer, though. The 60s is, of course, known as a decade of great tumult and change. But the fact is that there was no huge turnover in the national legislature during the 60s. The behavior of the legislature, of the Senate and the House, changed because of the constant presence of thousands, literally thousands mm-hmm. of demonstrations a year, and, of course, the periodic burning of the cities. And this is what those liberal politicians and, and the Biden types don't get, is that the only time that people in this country have really gotten legislation or policies that benefited the people and the, of the commons is when they tuck to the streets. And because playing the institutional game, those rules are rigged in favor of those people who are wealthy and who who are the collaborators of the wealthy few that maintain that. So the only way people in the United States in history bears this out, as you said, that they get changed is through demonstration in the streets and burning stuff, right? I don't see anything wrong from my position 
I don't see anything wrong with people looting. Property isn't the end-all, be-all. Human life itself is way more important than property. And the fact is, is that the people know that they themselves have been looted by those people who are running the neoliberal racial capitalist system. They're looting every day. It's just legal for them because they make the rules. So the thing is, we need to constantly keep the pressure on. We need to embrace our power, right? We need to be in the streets continuously because those politicians who are now occupying these official positions are not going to do the right thing given the predatory nature of and individualistic nature of racial capitalism. But the black woman mayor of Atlanta told the demonstrators to go home. Uh, she said they didn't appreciate that Atlanta was the home of lots of black businesses and black police commissioners and lots of black cops and black politicians <laughs> like herself. Well, uh, all I can say about uh, the, the Mayor Bottoms and, and what she said is that she is a part of that black you know, liberal politician wing that believe that they can play with the system and get what they want, but everybody else is denied. They want to satisfy their needs. That's that individualistic mentality that needs to die away, to go away. What we need is to be concerned about all people and not just about our own self-interest. And she's on the, along those lines. And that guy, T.I., and that killer Mike, all of them uh, in that kind of vein, they're there to divert attention from the power that the people truly have in the numbers in the streets to do what they need to do because electoral politics, and I believe she said, if you want to have constructive engagement, go out and vote. We know that voting for someone doesn't guarantee the changes that we seek in terms of our community. The black community has been the loyal constituency of the Democratic Party, and yet we get nothing. And I'm, a, I'm like Malcolm X in that point of view, is that we got to stop being chumps. And this is a moment where we stop being chumps and we go to hell with what the mayor has to say about this. This is what we're going to do because this is the only way we know how to get it because they're not listening to us and they're not willing to move. And so I would say to her, she needs to go take a seat. Black Lives Matter placards and slogans were ubiquitous at the hundreds of demonstrations. But we also saw FTP, which stands for F the police, which seemed yeah. to be the sentiment of many of the demonstrators. And I think the demonstrators are correct. I know some people are calling for the defunding of the police. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. My position is to abolish the police and abolish the criminal justice system as currently constituted and make it more people-centered and people-run and police themselves. No community review boards, you know, body cameras which don't work anyway, you know, all this other kinds of stuff that they come up with to put band-aids on it. The band-aid has come off. And people are telling them that we got this gaping wound, a band-aid can't hold it no more. We're frustrated. So those FTP signs, I think, are right on the mark, and they're expressing that kind of a sentiment that is to get rid of the police altogether and really to take their guns. They don't need guns. There has been no leadership putting forth a program about what is needed in order to remediate, to get rid of the crisis that affects the black community and all other poor communities in the United States. From my perspective, we need a national health care system. We need a guaranteed income. We need a national workers project to redo the infrastructure. We need a green new deal associated with that infrastructure rebuilding. We need free education. I mean, I'm talking about higher education, period. There should be no 
private schools, from my perspective, there should only be only public schools funded by the public, and there'll be no billionaire involvement in it. And we need, most important, a maximum wage. It is a heinous thing for any society to have billionaires and people approaching trillionaire kind of status like Bezos is, and millionaires. We don't need that. People should have a maximum income, a maximum wage of no more than $250,000. And they have their housing, which will be guaranteed by the public, the government itself, which is in our power. So we need stuff like that. We need programs like that so that people will come back to the government with the idea that they can trust it. Government that's in the interest of the people, that the, the politicians are not serving themselves, but are truly servants of the people. And until we get to that point, we're not going to solve this problem. And we need to have a deep, deep, frank, honest discussion about the genocidal history of the United States and white supremacy. That's what we need to deal with this capitalism stuff. We need, we need another economic system. But more than half of the discretionary federal budget goes to war. We need a war machine to make sure that we can discipline other people's bodies around the world and at home uh, so that we can exploit the hell out of them. We can get rid of that, and we're not in the business of exploiting people, but in doing, say, what Cuba does, to be internationalist, to help people to prosper around the world, to share our innovations as human beings, because it, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the people. It's not a, something that you can patent. That belongs to the people. It didn't come from you alone, right? So we need to be in favor of doing that so the military, as currently constituted, would not exist in that fashion. The budget would disappear. Those billions and billions of dollars that we spend on military, which Trump has done with Democratic support, mind you. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, even Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and all those folks, they voted for the defense budget. Even Bernie Sanders, they gave the money to the defense budget because they, too, the system itself, this racial capitalist system and government can't be reformed. It is irredeemable. It has to be torn down and restarted up by the people to make it centered on them and their needs and not the needs of these wealthy few people. It is killing the planet. It is killing us. We need to replace it with a new system. Dr. Johnny Williams, speaking from Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. The demand for community control of the police drew a thousand activists to Chicago last fall. The conference was organized by the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, chaired by veteran activist Frank Chapman. He says community control of police is a demand whose time has come. That is correct. Originally, we sent out a call calling upon people all over the country to join us in the day of protest with regard to the uh, people in prisons, uh, jails, and detention centers, because in our opinion, in our view, those jails, prisons, and detention centers have become death traps for people, mainly people of color, mainly black people and brown people. And so we are demanding that these prisoners be released, you know, as many of them as possible. There's a lot of people in there that don't have to be in there. They, they can start depopulating these jails and provide safety for those that they're not releasing. But we're really saying free them all because, in our view, there's no justification for holding somebody in a, in a jail waiting to catch a, the coronavirus. It makes no sense any way you look at it. But, of course, a key focus of the National Alliance against racial and political oppression is the demand for community control of the police, a demand that seems much more pertinent in light of the death in Minneapolis. You're absolutely right. 
the brutal, heinous murder of George Floyd actually increased our momentum tremendously because this is a stark example that we need to control the police. Until our communities, black and brown communities, get control of the police, they are going to continue to murder us with impunity. And so this has to stop. We have alliance people in, in Minneapolis who've been working with the movement there, and we are supporting the family and the demands of the family uh, 100%, 1,000%. We believe those killer cops, not just the one that had his knee on his neck, he was the one that perpetrated the murder, but they were all part of it, all four of them, and they should all be locked down. They should all be locked up, prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. We don't believe in not jailing these criminal cops. Give us an update on the progress that's been made in organizing for community control of the police. Well, right now, as you very well know, well, we have 19 older persons in the city of Chicago who are supporting our call for community control of the police. So this is a mass demand in the city. We have over 60,000 supporters in the community. We have the Chicago Teachers Union, Service Employees International Union, United Working Families. We have Soul. Black Lives Matter. We have a number of mass organizations and organizations in the Black Liberation Movement supporting this call for community control of the police. So we have made tremendous strides here in Chicago, but we haven't made the main stride that we want to make and that we need to make. And that is to get this bill for community control of the police. We call it CPAC, Civilian Police Accountability Council, to get this bill put into law. And now more than ever, there's an urgent need for that. We'll be at the mayor's house demanding that this bill be enacted uh, because what happened here in Chicago as a result of the uh, demonstrations we had this weekend, they arrested 1,000 people and put them in them COVID-infested jails. They beat people. They broke people's noses and gave people fractures and stuff, you know. So even during the pandemic, it becomes more and more obvious and clear that we need to have community control of the police. They're out of control. Well, sort of speak, they're out of control. They really are doing what they have been designed to do, and that is to oppress and repress us. I see a list of 22 cities that you say participated in the Alliance's National Day of Action over the past weekend. And those cities include many of those that have chapters of the National Alliance and that participated in the huge conference on community control of the police. How many of those cities have moved forward the demand for community control of the police? Well, I can name them. St. Louis, Missouri. They just had uh, 10,000 people in the streets, by the way, uh, demanding justice for George Floyd. Jacksonville, Florida. They had thousands of people in the streets demanding justice for George Floyd. Tallahassee, Florida. Dallas, Texas. Salt Lake City, Utah. Los Angeles. Minneapolis, St. Paul. So these are some of the major places right now where we are actively engaged informing alliance chapters. But over this weekend, we had people from all across the country to come into our organization. We haven't even finished counting them yet. So we are definitely in the process of growth and development. Yes, we understand that there were demonstrations revolving around George Floyd's killing, but I was asking specifically about activities for community control of the police. Well, in all those cities I just named, those are activities for community control of the police. 
in Jacksonville, Florida, they have advanced to the point where they have where they're inducing legis- legislation into their city council there. But in all those cities I just named, they are raising the banner of community control of the police. In Jacksonville, Florida, in Tallahassee, in Dallas, Texas, in Salt Lake City, in Los Angeles, uh, well, of course, you know Chicago, in St. Paul, Minneapolis, they, they have a, a huge movement there in terms of community control of the police. We're in a state of open rebellion. There's rebellion going on in this country right now. And it's a rebellion that is being uh, led by black people because it's black people who are catching the brunt of police repression. So we're going to tell people to stay engaged, to keep getting in the streets, to keep demanding justice for uh, George Floyd and all victims and survivors of police crimes, brutality, and murder. Now, we also hear from right-wing sources, but also from some black folks, complaints that whites are coming into these demonstrations and turning them violent. Well, that could be true. I don't have any evidence of that in Chicago, but I know I know one thing, that enough has been done to black people for them to rebel in whatever way they feel suitable to rebel. I'm not with this group of people that characterize our rebellion as a rebellion of rioters, looters, and thugs. This is a protest. It's a protest brought about by some of the most outrageous, inhuman oppression that's going on in the world today. And that's the oppression of black people in this country. And so when you murder people, when you abuse people, when you turn this COVID-19 into a weapon to murder black people, when you do these things, then you don't have no moral authority or standing to tell people about how they should fight back. So I'm not trying to hear all these scenarios about us being violent. Yes, and one could also interpret these kinds of charges as it attempts to label whites who protest in solidarity with blacks as outside agitators or something like that. Well, they've been doing this crap since the 30s. Like we need an outside agitator to come and tell us to revolt. I don't think so. And we extend back the hand of solidarity to those white sisters and brothers who are supporting us in our struggles. So we're not going to be distracted by this. We are in solidarity with them, and they're in solidarity with us. You know, like Fred Hampton said, you fight racism with solidarity. Well, this is what he meant. So they're coming out against racism. They're coming out against the brutal murder and oppression of black people. And that's good. That's a good thing. That was Frank Chapman of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, speaking from Chicago. It took thousands of atrocities, mass killings, and other outrages by slaveholders before some white abolitionists finally recognized the necessity of violence to overthrow the system. Professor Jesse Olavsky is an historian at Duke University and a scholar on resistance to slavery. She wrote a recent article about women, vigilance committees, and the rise of militant abolitionism. The term vigilance committees is a strange and, in fact, reactionary term in U.S. history that has a lot lot to do with the long line of vigilante politics in American history. So the first vigilance committees in the abolitionist era were, in fact, organized by slaveholders. Which is, and what these vigilance committees do is they took the law into their own hands. That is to say, they defended the law, they defended the Constitution, things which sanctioned slavery, and they used these vigilance committees to hunt down runaways, 
to repress, sometimes lynch or beat abolitionists, to put down slave rebellions. And in the North, abolitionists took up this term, vigilance committee, but it meant something completely the opposite. Instead of defending the law in the Constitution and the Fugitive Slave Act sanctioned by that Constitution, they undermined those things. And I think part of the lineage also goes back to the French Committee of Public Safety. So in this way, they're invoking the French revolutionary tradition as well. And what these committees did is they helped runaways escape from the South through various means. And it was an organized system of doing this. It's the organized wing of the Underground Railroad, you could say. But they also defended African-American communities from police, from slave catchers, from kidnappers who would hunt down fugitives, uh, which is constitutional at this time, as well as people who would illegally kidnap people and sell them into slavery. So those were the main objectives of these committees. And the reason that I focused on women in some of the writing that I've done is, as you mentioned, that I did most of the work, but also probably 25% of fugitives who are coming to these committees were women themselves. And the work that women did, besides resisting and fleeing slavery itself and becoming fugitive abolitionists and agitators, the other side to it is that the reason women did most of the work here is that much of this work was private work, you know, it was secret, it was underground, and it was a domestic labor, which is to say helping a fugitive required taking them into your home, caring for them, cooking them a meal, clothing them and bathing them sometimes, and moving them on to the next vigilance committee or wherever the fugitive desired to go. And some fugitives desired to go to England or Haiti, places like this. Others went to Canada. Some just went to Boston or, or stayed around. So in that way, there was a lot of domestic labor that was required. And there were rigid gender divisions of labor here. But at the same time, we would say the committees did recognize this domestic drudgery and they paid women to do this work uh, whenever they could. I mean, these committees had very strapped funds. The other side to the story is that most abolitionists, not all, are in some way or another committed to feminism or at least to women's rights. And they encouraged women's participation in the movement. So there was already a lot of women engaged in abolitionism. And these, I would say, are the most militant and serious of those women because they are engaging in public above-ground work and teaching the abolitionist movement, even fugitives, but they're engaged in the other underground wing of the abolitionist movement as well. And you write that the vigilance committees, this underground, actually helped diversify racially the very public abolitionist movement, which was mostly white and male. Right. Well, it's diversification in all sectors because it was white, male, and very often middle class, and even some of the first black abolitionists were from uh, middle class backgrounds. And, you know, the practical necessities of this work required a diversification of the people who participate in it. For example, African-American sailors are helping fugitives stow away onto ships. So you need to be connected to those sailors to help those fugitive slaves. Uh, it's women in the household. It's fugitives themselves who become the most important allies in this movement, but also other workers who serve as spies. For example, waiters, dock workers. These are people who are also on the, on the lookout for fugitives, and they have to be organized by these vigilance committees, or they have to be connected to them. So it's women, it's working-class men, both white and black, but mainly African-American, 
but also some of the major public intellectuals of the movement that you might know. For example, the great poet Francis Allen Watkins Harper, or William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, Wendell Phillips, all of the names that you've probably heard of in reference to the abolitionist movement, they are in some capacity or another involved in these vigilance committees. There was a small but very diverse front. Just as slavery was somewhat different for women than men, the ways of escaping were different too. Oh, yes. Uh, in some cases, and I think this is reflected statistically in the number of women who escape, is it, it is simply more difficult for a woman to escape slavery. For example, it was men who were more likely to get passes from masters to go out and work somewhere else outside of the plantation, which is to say that even under slavery, male slaves were slightly more mobile. And if you have a pass, that's an easy way to get off the plantation and then escape. Whereas if you see a woman wandering about a road alone, it's immediately suspicious. And patrols or vigilantes or overseers will become suspicious. They'll question this, this woman. They'll harass this woman. And also, much of the care work on the plantation of children, which builds important effective ties, this also is an issue. There are many women who refuse to leave their children in slavery and escape themselves. Some do, though. Some do leave their children. It's a very rare thing that happens. But in many cases, when they escape, they escape with their children or they escape with their friends. They escape in groups. You know, often they have to go armed. So the difficulties of escape are immense. But what they bring with them is an experience of the oppression that they've suffered, which is, you know, multiple forms of oppression. And also, as many historians have proven, much of the work of the plantation, both reproductive or social reproduction, as well as physical production, are done by women. They take with them an experience of that oppression, and in fact, they talk about it to abolitionists. This is how abolitionists start to learn about it and start to create a critique, what abolitionists themselves called the patriarchal institution. Slaveholders would call slavery the peculiar institution. It's our unique, peculiar institution. Abolitionists called it the patriarchal institution. I think there's a good reason for that. Most commercial media depictions of the Underground Railroad make the participants look, number one, almost entirely white, and number two, they're most often depicted as pacifists. But especially as the Civil War grew closer, these underground organizations were involved in violent resistance by the slaves. Yeah, absolutely. This is a myth that comes, I would say it's about two generations after the Civil War, just as you're getting the myth of the paternalist slavery, you know, during the period of reconciliation. At the same time, you're getting this myth about the Underground Railroad, which, by the way, abolitionists, both white and black, male and female, who wrote memoirs after the Civil War, they do not depict the Underground Railroad like that. But it's the generation after who have no experience of either slavery or abolition who start to depict the Underground Railroad as a largely white institution. It's pacifists or Quakers, and it's pacifists because they're shying away from the radical and revolutionary aspects of abolitionism. Because slavery is over. You can't go back to slavery by the 1890s or 1900s. So you actually have to retroactively justify the anti-slavery struggle. You do so by dulling down its radical dimensions, 
You make it seem less aggressive and violent. You put white people at the center for helping passive fugitive slaves. And some of that mythology still exists today, but the reality is quite different. Helping a fugitive is, in many cases, an act of self-defense, or it's an act of helping someone defend themselves. Because there are slave catchers on the prowl, and I'm not the only historian to show this. It's the fugitive slaves who are violently defending themselves against slave catchers and resisting the fugitive slave law who push abolitionists towards militant and sometimes violent tactics. Yes, but the post-Nat Turner period is quite important because not only were an estimated hundreds of black people randomly and arbitrarily killed in Virginia after that rebellion, but the repression was general throughout the South. Oh yeah, all over the South. The South closes itself off from any talk of gradual emancipation or any amelioration of slavery. Slavery expands, it becomes more repressive, it becomes more violent, becomes more expansionist, all in the wake of Nat Turner's revolt. And as I've written, many slaves who are runaways, they're very insistent on describing this repression to abolitionists uh, and writing about it in slave narratives or, it, or talking about it in their speeches. It was an important moment for them. I also know of one vigilance committee member who describes it as a revolutionary moment that's defeated. And he describes that now the work has to go underground. And for him, the person who said this, that meant working in the Underground Railroad. After this, it, some slaves mentioned that there's no other option but to run away. We're a minority in a white majority society. How can we mobilize a mass revolutionary insurrection like Haiti? It's just not possible. And so the Underground Railroad is in some ways born in the wake of Nat Turner's You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.